Chapter Six, Part One of Twenty Years of the Republic, eighteen eighty five to nineteen hundred five, by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Election of eighteen ninety two, Part One. After witnessing President Harrison's inauguration, Mr. Cleveland had left Washington and presently became a resident of New York City, where he resumed the practice of law as an associate of the firm of Bang, Stetson, Tracy, and McVeigh in the eyes of the professional politicians of both parties his public career seemed to have ended and to have ended in utter failure he was regarded as one who had by an accident of politics attained a transitory greatness to which he had proved to be personally unequal his dogged determination in forcing an apparently unpopular issue almost on the eve of a presidential election and merely as a matter of conviction had been quite incomprehensible at the time and the result appeared to justify the contempt which partisans such as senator gorman and governor hill confidentially expressed to their intimates they felt that mr cleveland had now been eliminated from national politics he had settled down as an everyday lawyer in a great cosmopolitan city where the complexity of life and the clash of material interests reduced even the most eminent of its citizens to comparative obscurity mr henry watterson rather complacently remarked at this time cleveland in new york reminds me of a stone thrown into a river there is a plunk a splash and then silence the ex-president accepted this verdict with philosophical good-humour he had nothing to regret he had acted in accordance with his sense of right and had done what he believed to be the best both for his country and for his party as he said a little later at a banquet given in his honour note one page two fifty three we know that we have not deceived the people with false promises and pretenses and we know that we have not corrupted and betrayed the poor with the money of the rich by his savings and by judicious investments in real estate mr cleveland had already secured a modest competence as a lawyer his professional labors yielded him a generous income he practised little in the courts but important cases were often referred to him by the sitting justices while his unquestioned integrity and conscientiousness led many prospective litigants to submit their interests to his arbitration there was one kind of legal practice which he persistently refused to undertake no persuasion could induce him to accept retainers from the great corporations note two page two fifty three mr cleveland was convinced that the moneyed interests had already become a menace to the welfare of the nation and with them he was unwilling to associate himself in any fashion whatsoever in the message which he sent to congress soon after his defeat for re-election he had pointed out the perils which he saw in vast and irresponsible aggregations of wealth whose possessors felt themselves to be above the law the fortunes realized by our manufacturers are no longer solely the reward of sturdy industry and enlightened foresight but they result from the discriminating favor of the government and are largely built upon undue exactions from the masses of our people the gulf between employers and employed is constantly widening and classes are rapidly forming one comprising the very rich and powerful while in another are found the toiling poor as we view the achievements of aggregated capital we discover the existence of trusts combinations and monopolies while the citizen is struggling far in the rear or is trampled to death beneath an iron heel corporations which should be carefully restrained creatures of the law and the servants of the people are fast becoming the people's masters the existing situation is injurious to the health of our entire body politic 
it stifles in those for whose benefit it is permitted all patriotic love of country and substitutes in its place selfish greed and grasping avarice devotion to american citizenship for its own sake and for what it should accomplish as a motive to our nation's advancement and the happiness of all our people is displaced by the assumption that the government instead of being the embodiment of equality is but an instrumentality through which a special and individual advantages are to be gained communism is a hateful thing and a menace to peace and organized government but the communism of combined wealth and capital the outgrowth of overweening cupidity and selfishness which insidiously undermine the justice and integrity of free institutions is not less dangerous than the communism of oppressed poverty and toil which exasperated by injustice and discontent attacks with wild disorder the citadel of rule note three page two fifty four but although mr cleveland was no longer an object of interest to the politicians there were many quiet indications that the great mass of his countrymen had not forgotten him invitations came to him continually from professional commercial religious educational and civic organizations which sought the honor of his presence at commemorative banquets and other public gatherings note four page two fifty four when his engagements permitted he acceded to these requests for as he said on one occasion he had no sympathy with those good souls who are greatly disturbed every time an ex-president ventures to express an opinion on any subject not infrequently he spoke at length to interested listeners and what he said was always sensible and wise and sometimes pregnant with suggestion as a public speaker mr cleveland was far from attaining brilliancy even his warmest friends could scarcely claim that he was an orator his manner and his style alike were heavy he had a strong preference for polysyllabic words and for sentences so involved as to be johnsonian in their ponderosity he had probably never heard the dictum of the french stylist who said l'adjectif c'est le plus grand ennemi du substantif for almost every noun was coupled with an adjective and these adjectives were frequently applied in pairs moreover like many another statesman he often took refuge in the baldest truisms which were seldom freshened up by originality of phrasing mr abram s hewitt once said of him in a tartly cryptic epigram which may be interpreted as conveying either praise or censure cleveland is the greatest master of platitude since washington it is likely however that mr cleveland's oratorical deficiencies were on the whole a distinct advantage to him the american people at that period still held to the conservative tradition which viewed exceptional accomplishments in public men if not with suspicion at least with a certain amount of caution brilliancy might rouse admiration but it could not inspire confidence in the long run it was the safe man rather than the showy man who secured the highest honors from the electorate clay and webster and blaine had won the frantic applause of millions yet they had all failed to achieve the one great prize on which their hearts were set no president had ever been an orator of the first rank save only lincoln and lincoln's great political addresses represented the oratory of reason rather than the oratory of emotion and hence in mr cleveland's case even when his utterances were very tame and his sentences quite commonplace they appealed to the multitude as embodying sound morality conservative opinion and what general grant was fond of calling good horse sense mr cleveland's lines therefore at this time were cast in pleasant places 
successful in his profession and respected by those whose personal esteem was worth the having he enjoyed a period of tranquillity that must have been most grateful after his stormy years of public office he spent his summers at a charming country seat upon the massachusetts coast to which he gave the name gray gables there he entertained his intimate friends with a genial friendly hospitality and there as an angler he won a reputation which he was said to value quite as much as any public honours that he had ever gained it was an ideal life for a retired statesman a life that he would gladly have continued to enjoy unvexed by the strife and din of party politics but the fates had decreed it otherwise the discussion of the mckinley bill in eighteen ninety and the overwhelming republican defeat in the congressional elections which followed close upon the passage of that measure brought mr cleveland once again into a prominence such as he was far from seeking it was he who in his bold message of eighteen eighty seven had first raised the tariff issue it was he who had forced the republicans to adopt a policy which had ended in their utter rout though he had at the time failed of re-election he had nevertheless inspired his party with aggressiveness and confidence many democrats now began to ask whether any one was so well fitted as he to lead the party back again to power the campaign of education begun in eighteen eighty eight was commencing to bear fruit looking forward to the coming struggle for the presidency popular feeling instinctively went out to mr cleveland as the logical candidate for eighteen ninety two yet although this sentiment was beginning to pervade the rank and file of the democracy it was most distasteful to the party managers in a phrase of their own choosing they had no use for mr cleveland to them he had always shown himself intractable and they had been pleased at what appeared to be his permanent elimination from politics it was not agreeable to think of him as likely to become again a candidate therefore they took no notice of the popular feeling in his favour but endeavoured to ignore him and to speak of him in public with a studied indifference as of one whose day was over and who had become politically a back number most of the party organs refrained from mentioning him in connection with the presidency some of them endeavoured to discredit him by a systematic press campaign of defamation conspicuous in this was the new york sun at that time under the editorship of mr charles a dana charles anderson dana was undoubtedly the most remarkable figure that had yet arisen in the history of american journalism born in eighteen nineteen and educated at harvard he was a careful student and omnivorous reader with a memory so tenacious as to place at his command a vast array of facts which his quick wit and literary skill enabled him to use with singular effectiveness as a very young man he had joined the fourierites for a time in the erratic though memorable experiment at brook farm a little later he was engaged in miscellaneous writing for the boston newspapers in eighteen forty seven he joined the staff of the new york tribune in whose office he developed a pungent style which was afterward to make him feared and famous here too he came into contact with all the most important public men of the antebellum period a violent dispute with horace greeley over the latter's unfortunate on to richmond editorial led to dana's retirement from the tribune in eighteen sixty two note five page two fifty eight and in the following year he was made assistant secretary of war in this capacity he rendered highly important service to his chief stanton who sent him upon confidential missions to the headquarters of the army with instructions to report upon the character and conduct of the leading generals dana's knowledge of human nature his grasp upon essentials and his power of going to the very heart of things made his reports invaluable both to the secretary and to mr lincoln 
it was due to dana's favourable judgment that general grant was not relieved of his command in eighteen sixty three but was upheld by the administration in the teeth of the fiercest criticisms in eighteen sixty four however dana left the war department and returned to journalism editing for a while the chicago republican in this he failed completely discouraged and uncertain of his future he came to new york where he established himself in eighteen sixty eight as editor of the new york sun it was the year of grant's first election to the presidency dana remembering the service which he had done the general and having besides a real liking for the man wrote a life of grant which he intended to be a sort of campaign biography for it was highly eulogistic and was written with an intimate knowledge of its subject political usage and personal gratitude might have suggested to the new president the bestowal of some reward on one whose ability was so exceptional as mr dana's yet for some reason which has never been satisfactorily explained grant absolutely ignored the claim it was dana's desire to be made collector of the port of new york but the office was given to another and by this act grant made an enemy whose unrelenting hatred pursued him to the grave with an almost frantic eagerness dana set about destroying every copy of the life upon which he could lay his hands so that to-day the book is practically unattainable outside of a few libraries then in the columns of the sun he waged upon grant a war of slander which for sheer malignity has never been surpassed dana knew quite well that grant was honest clean-living patriotic and sincere note six page two fifty four yet now with a perversion of facts that was infernal in its ingenuity he painted him as a corrupt and brutal scoundrel one who used his office for his personal enrichment a tyrant a vulgar ruffian and a common drunkard every one connected with the president even his wife and family came in for a share of dana's wrath or ridicule at one time the editor was indicted in the district of columbia and an attempt was made to have him removed to washington for trial over such a prospect dana was almost beside himself with fear his hysterical editorials made it plain that had his case been actually tried in washington he must have gone to prison but judge blatchford sitting in new york refused the change of venue in consequence the case was dropped and dana continued to lash the president with even greater fury than before after grant's retirement to private life the attitude of the son remained the same even when the hero of the great war was awaiting burial and when all other criticism was stilled in the presence of death dana launched a poisoned shaft at those who loved grant best the son published an account of an undertaker's bill which the general's family had very properly refused to pay but which dana himself had settled with an ostentatious show of hypocritical benevolence that was absolutely devilish the change in dana's attitude toward grant in eighteen sixty eight was however only a single aspect of a change which had altered his entire nature until then he had been genial and fair-minded with a touch of something like idealism in his view of things he had associated with honourable men and his life had been a useful one but as he now looked back upon it that life appeared to him a failure uprightness optimism and a regard for others had not paid both in journalism and in public life he had somehow missed success and he was now in his fiftieth year and so he seems to have said to himself that henceforth in his career as journalist he would take no heed of right or wrong but would gain a certain sort of fame and a sure material reward by throwing overboard all principle from that time he was thoroughly a cynic and a pessimist 
in his charming home at roslyn and to a very few intimate friends he still showed himself to be a genial cultivated gentleman interested in his books and flower gardens and with a genuine enthusiasm for rare pottery of which he was a connoisseur but as editor of the sun he played consistently the part of devil's advocate he set himself to jeer at whatever was best and noblest to degrade and burlesque whatever decent men respected to defend or palliate the base and to treat corruption as an admirable joke thus he supported tammany in the days of its worst offences he was the apologist of tweed he warmly commended the proposal to erect a public monument to that notorious malefactor on the other hand every attempt to improve political conditions such as the reform of the civil service and the movement for an honest ballot was greeted by dana with an outburst of derision he used his newspaper also as a weapon to avenge his personal dislikes and whoever incurred his enmity or roused his prejudice was pilloried in the columns of the sun had mr dana been a journalist of the usual type his hatreds and his expression of them would soon have ceased to be of any interest and would most probably have proved the ruin of the sun but the man was a genius in his way his rhetoric was superb and even those who most disliked him were reluctantly compelled to own the power of his invective he had an unerring instinct for touching his victim on the raw and his ingenuity in giving pain was marvellous furthermore there was something tricksy something impish even in his malevolence so that outrageous though he was his outrageousness had an indefinable quality which raised it far above the level of vulgarity to him might well have been applied the description which disraeli once gave of lord salisbury a master of jibes and flouts and jeers a careful student of his editorial work once wrote of him he had a gift for making men seem hateful or contemptible or ridiculous and he used his talent most unsparingly his nicknames and epithets stuck like burrs to those at whom he hurled them who cannot recall the score of these appellations note seven page two sixty two every one of which conveyed to the mind the suggestion of something ludicrous and quite apart from its editorial page the sun was managed with great ability it was then perhaps the most readable newspaper in the united states its news was collected with the utmost accuracy its reporting was often done with a skill and cleverness that gave it a distinctly literary quality its editor was regarded with intense admiration by journalists throughout the country and he became the founder of a journalistic cult dana was ostensibly a democratic partisan his friends asserted that at election time he had always voted the republican ticket if so this was a characteristic example of his cynicism for in his editorial columns everything republican was anathema most probably he preferred to be in opposition because such a role gave fuller scope to his peculiar gifts indeed in eighteen eighty when the september election seemed to indicate that the democratic candidate general hancock was likely to be chosen president in november dana deliberately wrote a double-leaded editorial in which he sneered at hancock as a good man weighing two hundred fifty pounds a jibe which greatly delighted the republicans the only note of sincerity in dana's writings was found in his support of mr tilden who was his personal friend when mr cleveland was elected governor of new york dana at first was favorable to him but presently he became inimical for reasons that are variously given some say that as mr tilden's liking for governor cleveland cooled dana took his own cue from tilden others assert that mr cleveland rejected certain overtures that were made to him by dana and declined to invite the editor to albany in answer to a hint 
Note 8, pages 263 and 64. However this may be, the sun soon ranged itself among the anti-Cleveland journals, and in 1884 it supported the Greenback nominee General B. F. Butler. It was exceedingly like Dana to advocate the election of this brazen charlatan, who holds in history the bad eminence of having been the only conspicuous northern commander in the Civil War, against whom charges of personal corruption were practically proven. Note 9, page 264. Throughout Mr. Cleveland's presidency, Dana maintained a sort of malevolent neutrality, giving many a satirical thrust at the man whose reforming spirit was obnoxious to the presiding genius of the sun on the day after cleveland's defeat in the election of eighteen eighty eight dana printed without comment an entire column of quotations from medical and physiological works on the subject of obesity thereafter the sun ignored the ex-president until once more he loomed up as a possible candidate now dipping his pen in vitriol dana outdid himself in running the entire gamut of abuse from ridicule to excoriation to him mr cleveland became the perpetual candidate and later the stuffed prophet some of these editorials were masterpieces of malignity and as such they are almost worthy of permanent preservation they served no end however save to draw increased attention to his enemy's political availability it was mr cleveland himself who in the judgment of many persons deliberately ruined his own prospects by an utterance which he made at this time upon a question which had been violently injected into national politics before narrating the occurrence it is necessary to give a brief account of the growth of the silver movement in the western states in the early years of its existence the republican party had been dominated by one controlling purpose the destruction of slavery the issue which gave it birth was distinctly a moral issue and the enthusiasm which inspired it was a moral enthusiasm its first declaration made at jackson michigan on july sixth eighteen fifty four declared that the republican party was battling for the first principles of republican government and against the schemes of an aristocracy all republicans were pledged in this declaration to act cordially and faithfully in unison postponing and suspending all difference with regard to political economy or administrative policy note ten page two sixty five the republican party therefore was distinctly not a party of caste or of class but preeminently a party of the people devoted to the cause of human freedom in those days the power of wealth and the pride of birth were equally arrayed against it the rich merchants and bankers of boston new york and philadelphia viewed this new party as a menace to political tranquillity and vested interests they joined hands gladly with the aristocratic planters of the south in seeking to stamp out so strange and disquieting a fanaticism it was the most respectable citizens of massachusetts who ostracized charles sumner who broke up anti-slavery meetings who mobbed garrison and threatened to lynch whittier the republican leaders boasted that their party was not one of wealth and privilege but of intelligence and moral worth clergymen teachers writers and small professional men joined its ranks which were still further recruited from the agricultural portions of the country the great strength of the republican party lay not in the eastern states but in the young commonwealths of the west in ohio illinois iowa michigan wisconsin and minnesota the first republican president was the very incarnation of democracy so plain in manner so simple in life and so ruggedly sincere as to seem to the fastidious denizens of the east a mere barbarian it was therefore as a party of the people that republicanism first won its way to political power 
when the civil war ended the great purpose of the primitive republicans had been achieved slavery was abolished forever the feudalism based upon it was annihilated every inch of american territory had become free soil as we now look back upon that period with a sense of true political perspective it is plain that the old republican party really died in the year eighteen sixty six the party which afterwards continued to bear its name was altogether different from that which had rallied around fremont in eighteen fifty six and which had twice elected lincoln it was different in its aims and aspirations different in the character of its leaders and different in the influences which shaped its policy its years of almost irresponsible power had utterly transformed it controlling the national finances with an overwhelming majority in congress and having in its gift not merely office and opportunity but every sort of legislative favor it drew to itself the support of every interest which ten years before had been arrayed against it it was now the party of the bankers the manufacturers the lords of commerce and all those active restless scheming spirits who had learned that great fortunes were to be made in other ways than by legitimate industry the true citadels of the republican party were now the crowded centres of the east while the agricultural states received but slight consideration the continuance of the war tariff which enriched a comparatively few interests at the expense of the entire population was the most striking factor in the development of this new republicanism the farmer was compelled to pay tribute to the manufacturer and so the republican party in this second phase of its existence became a party of class as truly as the democratic party had ever been in the days before the war the west was slow in recognizing the significance of this change but as time went on financial conditions operated to cause serious distress in the first place the gradual appreciation in the value of the paper dollar pinched the debtor class severely the farmer for example who in eighteen sixty three had mortgaged his farm for five thousand paper dollars worth perhaps not more than half that sum in gold found that he must repay the loan in dollars worth nearly twice as much and therefore representing twice as much economy and diligence and labor the resumption of specie payments in eighteen seventy nine though a triumph of financial management did nevertheless inflict a serious hardship upon all men who had borrowed money at a time when the paper currency of the united states was worth much less than its face value this hardship was of course inevitable but it was none the less a hardship and it is not surprising that those who suffered from it should have tried to seek a remedy hence arose the so-called greenback party which as early as eighteen seventy six nominated candidates for the presidency and vice-presidency on a platform which demanded the repeal of the act for resuming specie payments and which advocated the issue of united states notes as the sole currency of the nation upon this platform peter cooper of new york received in that year a popular vote of eighty one thousand while in eighteen eighty another greenback candidate james b weaver of iowa polled a vote of over three hundred thousand this movement however represented only one form of popular discontent there were other grievances more irritating and apparently more easily remediable one was the manner in which the railways of the country had monopolized the public lands note eleven page two sixty eight barring great tracts to settlers while refusing to comply with the conditions under which the grants of land had been bestowed another grievance was the discrimination in railroad rates by which the small shipper was forced out of business by powerful corporations note twelve page two sixty eight still another was the working of the tariff laws which had steadily discriminated against the most widespread of all american industries 
agriculture while forcing it to bear the greater burden of taxation it came at last to be widely asserted and believed that the government of the united states was becoming a creature of the corporations that congress was filled with corporation agents railway senators and trust representatives and that even the judges on the bench were often men whose antecedents as corporation lawyers discredited their judicial decisions all these and still other reasons for public discontent first found expression in isolated political movements throughout the west besides the greenback or national party there arose the so-called anti-monopoly party which held its first convention at chicago in eighteen eighty four in eighteen eighty eight two labor parties appeared each with a different set of grievances the so-called granger movement was another evidence of the popular discontent the grangers or as they were officially styled the patrons of husbandry were an organization of which the founder was one o h kelly a clerk in the bureau of agriculture their general aim was to unite for self-protection all who were actually engaged in agricultural pursuits by eighteen seventy five the grangers who then numbered more than one million five hundred thousand men and women had definitely formulated certain measures which they hoped to have embodied in both state and national legislation like the knights of labor they advocated women's suffrage and the regulation of railway rates this organization afterwards grew into the farmers alliance just as the knights of labor grew into the american federation of labor and as both of them had many aims in common they effected a coalition in eighteen eighty nine when they agreed upon a common platform of principles demanding the abolition of national banks an increased issue of government paper and the government ownership of all means of transportation and public intercourse by this time the western states were in a condition of political ferment as yet there was no general cohesion or agreement between the different factions and parties they lacked a leader they had not as yet developed any political machinery in the east little notice was taken of them the newspapers treated them with easy ridicule and described the intensely earnest men and women who composed them as cranks and calamity howlers many of them were indeed unintelligent fanatics many of their wrongs were fanciful many of their remedies were quite impossible yet there did remain a very solid substratum of reason for these various movements and the discontent was not without substantial justification the epithets so sneeringly applied to the rank and file of the new parties recalled the no less sneering epithets that had been hurled at the republicans in the days of their anti-slavery crusade they too had been described as wild men and fanatics and enemies of public order End of chapter six part one